0: Scripture reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, This is the word of God. How much
1: awareness do you have of how the COVID pandemic shutdown changed you? And you may notice certain things of how you're different or how you're living different, um, but even how we relate is different. and we're still finding that out. We find, uh, we're finding out that we formed certain habits that are, are now with us. So for example, I imagine most of you uh, during that period, one of the unique things about it was we had the technology to continue to go to school, to continue to work, to st- continue to stay in touch with people. So uh, we had the period where we were at home and then the period afterwards where you still may have had meetings uh, or or connections on Zoom or Google Meet or FaceTime, whatever it was. Well, well, how did a long period of time relating that way change how you relate today? So if you were a student, uh, the, the student experiences often, teachers are presenting material they find compelling that you do not. And so you sit there thinking, I'm not interested. This has nothing, nothing to do with my life. Uh, if you're in meetings, a lot of your meetings, you feel like nothing that we're discussing now is going to improve me and the na- nature of my work. Um, and so what resources did we have previously uh, to engage those situations? We had daydreaming. You could sit there and be bodily present and pay attention, but think of other things. But the interesting thing about the computer is you could be at a meeting and you could look right at the screen and shop where you could read articles or you could text your friends and it would look like you're in the meeting. And, and so somehow we've developed a unique skill which is to make it look like we're engaged and to stay engaged enough that if you're called on, you could unmute and you could say, yes, I am totally, uh, resonate with that and think that that was um, something that I find valuable and then unmute. Uh, and, and so, okay, so, so we've had years to practice that. So then now after church, we say, why don't you sit, uh, turn around, and say hi to somebody. And the person starts talking about this show they saw on Netflix that you're not interested in. And you've had several years in those moments of being able to just do the thing you're interested in, but, but you know that as you're anxiously wanting to reach for your phone, because that gives the stimulation to deal with the boredom that's coming in, that we haven't yet gotten to the place where you could just do that. And so you sit there, uh, stand there with the anxiety of, of uh, how do I get out of this as soon as possible. When that becomes a normal experience afterwards, and as a church, we're like, stick around, have lunch, join the community. And what you're feeling is after each interaction, my heart just wants to leave. It's fine occasionally, but if that's what you're doing week after week and finding that any embodied interactions that you've lost kind of the muscle for it, it's it's a path towards loneliness where then the entire experience of life is mediated through technology, and there's still something about human beings uh, coming together and sharing a meal and talking and laughing that's different. And so uh, if you've been part of a manual for the last few months, a phrase that's come up is uh, cultivating life together. So the concept of life together is fundamental to church life because we're a community, among other things. Uh, for thousands of years, Christians have come together to do life together. But we have this concept of cultivating life together because right now it feels harder. So community is always hard. Uh we're all selfish. We're, you know, lots of us are quirky, and so we come together, and uh and so so community is often difficult. But in New York, community can be harder. People are very busy. Um, People may be superficial. uh, And there are all sorts of things that make life harder. And then you add to that just the tiredness, the the not having the strength to, to stay in a conversation for more than five minutes. And what could happen is we could find ourselves just coming as a as a community with religious functions. Let's just come together and do the business of what, what, Christ, what our book of church order requires and leave. But we want more than that. We want life. We want, we want the life of God in us, but we need others for that. That's God's design. So... It's something that we probably need to be a bit more intentional about practicing. And so we're looking at Ephesians this year because among other things, Ephesians gives a vision for the church. Uh, and today the phrase in verse 21, um, uh, the picture of, of a structure of being put together is that we are being joined together and growing. That's verse 21. The same language comes up in uh, Ephesians 4. but that picture of, of Jesus coming to, to bring things together in some meaningful, deep way so that life is, is now among God and his people and it produces growth. So I'm going to talk about those two things today, being joined together and then growing together. So I'm beginning with being joined together... And there's a number of images in this passage, but the one that gets the most vocabulary words around it is the image of the temple. And that's in verse 20, the picture of God's people the community as a church, it's like we're a holy temple in the Lord. And what's important here, what makes Christian community different than other social organizations where we have common interests or common goals or common location or whatever it is we have in common, Verse 22 speaks of, of, of this community as being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church is a spiritual community of a certain kind, not spiritual in that we like emotional things, or we like, you know, maybe more uh, fantasy kind of things rather than practical, tactical things. Uh, that's some, some, some of the ways that people think about spirituality. Um, the Christian vision is that God is actually present with his people, that his life is at work. We're a spiritual people because God has sent the Holy Spirit, not because it's natural to us to be spiritual or to be mature or to be anything, but, but God, by his grace, has drawn near. And in that sense, in, in what way is the church like a temple? Well, <clears throat> the temple, among other things, was the place where God was present in the center of the lives of his people. And so that imagery throughout the Bible that's so important uh, it, it, uh, plays a role here in understanding our identity. And so I'm, I'm going to say a few things about uh, the, the, the temple and the story of scripture. It starts as the tabernacle in, in the book of Exodus, where after Moses leads the people out of Egypt, there's instructions. The whole uh, the last part of the book of Exodus is instructions for building a tabernacle, a portable place where God dwells among his people. But then David, many years later, the king says, I've finally come into a permanent place, Jerusalem. So why not have a permanent dwelling place for God? Let me build a temple. And it was, it was to take the tabernacle and make it permanent. And interestingly, God said to David, thank you, but you are not going to build a temple. And then he said, but your son will. And the story goes on and Solomon, David's son, does build a temple, but it's a complicated enough story that you have a sense immediately, things aren't going as they should. And truly that was not the enduring place because that temple was destroyed. And then in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, there was another temple. So in the days of Jesus, there was a second temple existing. Um, But the story of scripture, Matthew begins with Jesus, the son of David. One of the things he's doing is he's coming into the world in order to actually fulfill that promise, that actually God's dwelling place would now be in this earth. Um, and those who have studied the tabernacle and the temple have noticed there's something about it where it's not just God's presence, it's not just sacrifices and worship, but there's something in the design of it that it's meant to be almost like a garden of Eden on earth. And so in the instructions for the tabernacle, they're supposed to carve these trees with uh, pomegranates on them, and you're supposed to have this big bowl with water. And then you go back to Genesis 2. It's a story of God forming Adam from the dust and then breathing into him so that he becomes a living being. That's kind of profound, but the, the spirit of God, he becomes a living being as God's spirit comes into him. And then he's given this task, which is to to take the garden that God has begun to make and to to fill the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply. And the imagery of that um, makes its way into the temple because something goes wrong. Rather than making the whole earth like the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve turn from God, and therefore they're exiled. They become strangers. There's now Enmity is one of the words of Genesis 3. There's hostility between uh, people, people and God, between the created world. And so they're sent out of the garden. The instruction for the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple, was this interesting thing of now God who's separated from humanity now is concerned to be present with humanity. Uh, in a particular way, but it's a very guarded way. So the temple, uh, there's a there's the holiest place where God is there, but people don't have access to it, except for one person, only once in the annual cycle, the high priest who goes in. But otherwise, there's a sense in which makes this nation unique: is God is in our midst, and we're going to organize our whole life around the nation. So, so even in this passage where it talks about um, there's a political imagery, there's familial imagery, there's temple imagery. Uh, the temple where God was present being central, then you read how Israel was to be organized uh, around the temple with some to the north and some to the south and some to the east and some to the west. So there's a political reality with God in their midst, but there's also a familial reality. They're tribes, they're children of a specific person, Jacob, whose name became Israel. Um, and so in this picture, the idea is there's a political organization, there's a familial organization, but, but what makes this nation, these people unique is God is present among them. And the hope is not that they would assimilate and become like the nations, but that the nations might come and start to worship this God. But the way the story unfolds is a, is a complex story where that doesn't happen. And so the reality that we have now in verse 12, uh, Paul's words to the Ephesians to remember the nature of the human condition in the world as it is. He says, remember that you were at that time before you came to faith, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope, and without God in the world. So think of those words, you're separated, you're alienated, you're strangers, The isolation, the loneliness, the, 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 the components of humanity that it says, it's to be without hope. And the problem is it's because of being without God in the world, because Ephesians 4.18 talks about them being alienated from the life of God. God is is the one who when he's with us we're alive and when we're separated we're dying and so how do we know that this separation this alienation this hopelessness is part of our experience besides simply just reflecting on your own mood and thoughts well look into the world and one of the things that we see is everywhere throughout the ages the presence of hostility and so verse 14 there's a dividing wall of hostility. And that's something that separates nations. Um, So we have our territories and there's encroachment on those lines. And it's interesting when you're from a different part of the world, those group of nations can appear to have more in common than they are distinct. And yet when you're there, there's hostility. And we could say, but as families, that's, that's meant to be a different kind of place where we, have, uh, we, we share the same genes, we share the same experience, we have certain obligations, and yet what family doesn't have some hostility in it? This week, Thanksgiving, uh, let's get together and be together and be thankful. I wonder for how many of you uh, the thought of gathering with, with family or with loved ones produces anxiety. Some of you may have decided, I'm not going to do it because if I wanna be thankful, I don't wanna enter a scenario where there's hostility. Um, It's everywhere, it's in families, it's in nations, it's in all communities, including religious communities. And so uh, what Paul is saying is Jesus comes precisely into this world, this politically divided world, this um, uh, family uh, divided context, um, even a religiously confused world and the descriptions of Jesus are quite interesting. So last year, if you were with us, we went through John's gospel. Here's just a quick walk through the opening. Uh, John 1, uh, Jesus was the word of God who was with God and who is God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now that's, that's tabernacle language. That's temple language. Wait, God whos who we're separated from comes and makes his presence somehow contained in the earth. That's John 1. John 2 Jesus goes to the temple and turns over the tables. And they come to him and they say, what are you doing? And he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He is not threatening to destroy the temple. His sign by turning over the tables was to communicate God is leaving. So the temple will be destroyed, not by me or by my followers, but because when the life-giving God is not present, that's what will happen. But if you destroy me on the third day, there will be the start of a new building. And then so in John 3, he goes among the Samaritans, and they get into an argument about being Jewish or not Jewish, and the Samaritan woman there says, well, your people say you need to worship on that that mountain, and Jesus says, yes. (laughs) But the day has come when actually all people can worship in spirit and in truth, that the worship of God is no longer the nations coming to this place, but God coming into this place and then going from there out to the nations. And so this passage describes Jesus as a cornerstone. God is is doing something that's going to be a hinge of history, changing it from the old to the new. And in that, Jesus is central to the plan. Jesus comes among the hospital, hostile to announce that he is the prince of peace. And what's remarkable is that the nature of God's plan is to bring peace into the world by subjecting himself to the hostility. And that's where we have in verse 16 that Jesus came to reconcile us both, thus divided human beings, Jew and Gentile, came to reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus comes into the world to announce peace, to kill the hostility, and he does it by allowing the hostile to kill him. And somehow we're told that if we're willing to see that as God's grace to us, then we could lay aside our own hostility and forget about it and receive the peace that God brings to us. And so where Paul reminds them of their condition, you were aliens, you were strangers, you were separated, you were without hope, you were without God in the world. He says this because Jesus has come and now in verses 13 to 14, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. There's something that's hard to grasp that in the wisdom of God, Jesus comes and allows himself to be torn apart by a hostile crowd in order to end the hostility and to bring the peace of God into the world. It's really hard to grasp to, grab, to, uh, to put your mind around. But that's the testimony of scripture. Somehow this is God's plan to create a new people so that in the body of Christ, his body, that was uh, given on the cross, uh, those who put their faith in him would be part of a new body that's a reconciled body, not a hostile body, but a body of peace where we come and we take on a new identity, a new hope, and we have the life of God in us. And so um, as we look at this passage and try to grasp this, there, there are deep and profound things here that are, are, are not common to our world. And, and one of the ways that, that you can see that the Bible is trying to stretch our imaginations and forcing us to trust him is, is because, for example, Christianity presents God as Trinitarian. Uh, we are monotheists. We believe in one God, but that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in verse 18, it now speaks of access through Jesus in one spirit to the Father. Um, In the old pattern of thinking, you can be monotheists or you could be polytheists. And it's kind of like Jesus came into a two-dimensional world to bring a depth that's been lacking, which is to say, we believe in one God. Um, but actually your framework needs to change and it's not going to be easy. If you stay in the old framework, you're going to think it's irrational. But if you step into the new framework, you're not going to have everything figured out. You're going to need to trust God. We believe in one God, but somehow that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. It creates the possibility that in the binary ways that we think, which always leads us to an us and a them, and the hostility in us then makes us want to turn against them, and that becomes how we um, then act out of our violent or controlling instincts. That, that Christianity is coming to add at another dimension to say there, there's a unity of God, but that doesn't mean everything's fine. We're not all one with him. But somehow there's something about what God is doing that's changing our perspective of, of adding a reality that um, that's hard to grasp, but but it's there to say that that God is is more profound than you realize. And part of the transformation of the renewing of the mind is to come to know this God personally. So something of his life is gonna give you a depth of perspective to look out into the world where the most fundamental reality is not your hostility or theirs, but there's something else there. And it comes through the life-giving gift of peace that God gives. And so, when Jesus talked about the law being fulfilled, he talked about two parties. You have to love God and you have to love neighbor. And there's something about the spirit in us that helps us to do that. So so right there, there's, there's me as an individual. I'm distinct and yet I'm connected with others in a meaningful way. I have a new identity. I'm still me, but, but now there's an us. And somehow the life of God is in this. That change is something that we still have trouble grasping. And even, Given the way that we're naturally wired, most of us get one aspect, either the love God aspect or the love people aspect right. But without the Holy Spirit renewing us, we're not gonna do both. And so some of you really love to read, to pray, to contemplate, but to be together with others drains you. And some of you wanna be, you wanna, you wanna be the one who shows up and gets on the line and serves people and welcomes people, but to go home and sit still and think about your life is hard. And yet we're told that the way of growth is somehow uh, to be incorporating all of these things, that there's life with the Father that strengthens us for life with one another. So one of the, one of the books that a lot of people in our uh, circles would read is Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in it, one of the things that he says, one of the standout quotes, um, as a reminder to how human beings have this idea of community that's utopian and often, therefore, unrealistic or destructive, he says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. See, it's a different approach that the love of God in us changes how we relate to each other. And it's not that we want community, but we have God and community means to come from it. But Bonhoeffer in that book talks precisely about that sense that some of us love to pray, but don't like people. Some of us love people, but don't want to engage with God. And he says, one who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Now, is a Lutheran, so he's very concerned about authentic community um, uh, being uh, ruined by the presence of sin. He he wants there to be a confessing community, a community that's open with their sins. And one of the things that he's saying is that if you're alone with God and always alone, then then you'll be fostering your, your ego. But if you're only with people, and and not bringing something of true deep reflection with you, uh, then, then it's just superficial and meaningless and, and it's not gonna be real community. He's aiming at something that's possible that's different, but it's only different when the spirit is present and powerfully at work in us. And because this is hard, there's a number of, 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 of uh, there's so many thinkers that uh, try to help us with both of those, <laughs> how to help us to patiently love people, how to help us patiently sit and be still with God, it's not easy because what's normative for us is alienation, uh, being strangers. And yet we're, we're told to adopt a new way of life that through faith, the gospel of peace allows us to be alone with God. And that work changes us. And then we go out and with the spirit in us are able to relate to people differently. So Henry Nowen, uh, a different writer, uh, in his book Wounded Healer, says something that I think Uh, speaks into the the loneliness um, that can often accompany not simply life, but even the Christian life. He says, many people in this life suffer because they are anxiously searching for the man or woman, the event or encounter, which will take their loneliness away. But when they enter a house with real hospitality, they soon see that their own wounds must be understood not as sources of despair and bitterness, but as signs that they have to travel on in obedience to the calling sounds of their own wounds. He's reshifting things, which is to say where we're hurting, what we want to do with the hurting is bring everything towards us in a way that doesn't actually heal us. But when we could come among a place where there's genuine hospitality, where you could be yourself, where you're welcomed, then all of a sudden, the woundedness, it's not something that we boast in. It's not something we desire. It's not something we want to foster and feed. But it becomes part of a reality that in community, we realize this is pointing us to our need for healing. This is showing us that, that hostility is not the way, but that love and reconciliation is the better way. And so, so now in, in that chapter, it goes on to say community arises where the sharing of pain takes place, not as a stifling form of self-complaint but as a recognition of God's saving promises. And that's the picture of Christian community. We're not a perfect community, so we could come and pretend we're fine and not talk about what's really going on on and remain superficial, or we could declare that we're gonna be authentic and let it all out so that we're just, you know, encouraging one another in our misery. When the life of God is in our midst, when the Holy Spirit is at work, when the gospel of grace uh, broadens and deepens our imagination, it allows us to come together as our fragile, open, wounded selves and actually care for one another and speak truthfully and share and encourage and practice a genuine kind of hospitality. And what's chief for that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. In what way is the church a temple? Um, our practices are important, our patterns are important, but the essential thing for there to be life among this community is the presence of God by the power of his Holy Spirit. And when that renewal is pointing us to the grace of Christ, when, when our hearts cry out to God as Father, then we're, we're put in a place where in the reality of all of the places we need to grow and all the places we need healing, We remember the redemptive God who comes in the midst of hostility in order to help, to heal, to bring us out. So this picture of a church that's joined together is a unique community that's held together um, by God's spirit. So here's the second thing, growing together. We're joined together. We're told that's the Christian reality. If your faith is in Christ, kind of like in John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You as an individual branch, if you're connected to the vine. Uh, his life is at work in you. But if you're connected to the divine, you're also connected to the other branches. Uh, there's a new community that you're meant to be part of. So we're called to grow together. And in this passage, there are these different images. So there's the kingdom uh, images. You're, you're sort of a, uh, you know, when he talks about, uh, formerly, you were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't part of the nation. You weren't a citizen. Um, You weren't part of the household of God. You weren't in the family, Uh, nor were you part of the worshiping community. You weren't welcome in the temple. Now in verse 19, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And again, you think of the Trinitarian nature of things. Jesus Christ comes saying, there's a kingdom of heaven and I'm the king. So if we're with him, we are now citizens of that nation. Jesus says, I have come so that you would have access to the Father. So now, when you call on Father, you're part of the family, the household of God. But what I'm trying to focus us on in this passage is, but we're also a community that worships God in the Holy Spirit. So verses 20 to 21, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that organic reality of a church being a growing, dynamic um, uh, uh, place. uh, Let me highlight three ways in which uh, there's growth in the church. One is individually. God's plan for each of you is that you would walk with God personally. You need to pray. You need to read the Bible. You need to be aware of God. You need to make your own choices so you are still an individual But by God's design as an individual, you will only really grow to the degree that you're relating to God and to other people. And so therefore, for you to grow, if you're only reading the Bible and watching YouTube videos, you're limited because you're not actually doing the loving. You're not actually receiving the generosity. You're not actually breaking bread. And so as an individual, you need to grow with other people. Uh, But there's a second form of growth that's envisioned in Ephesians which is a growing together, which is when we come together for our practices, when we study the Bible together, when we pray for each other, when we break bread, when we do these various things, um, the the time where we're doing that is what creates that the human depth where it's a spiritual connection because it's the life of God in us that gives us that, that one faith, that one Lord, that one baptism, that one God and Father over all. And so you will deepen in community if you're finding that you want a sense of belonging, connecting with the church and participating in the life of the church over time is where that sense of belonging comes. Um, but it still needs to be God-centered. It still needs to be the work of God's spirit. But what I wanna end with um, is there's a kind of growth that's envisioned here that I think is a fulfillment of Genesis 2, the, the sense in which we're to fill the earth with uh, God's life-giving glory and beauty. That, that the, the picture here as a temple that grows, There's a deepening, there's a coming together. but There's also this going across the earth because the idea was, will the nations come to this temple? And the gospel paradigm is they didn't. And so from that temple, God goes out to the nations. And so God's plan, even if you read like Isaiah 11, I think it is, one of the Christmas texts where it talks about the spirit of the Lord being on the one who would come. It's so clearly about Jesus. It says the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. There's a sense in which God comes to his temple and then starts to build His new structure, inviting people in who would become living worshipers, who offer themselves. And, and part of God's purpose in that is so that as the church goes across the globe, the, the goodness of God's presence, uh, the renewing possibilities is meant to extend into every nation, every people group, every language. Every part of the earth, um, God's plan is to go. And so this mission, we see Paul the Apostle, for example, in Acts 17. Uh, here he's trying to go everywhere. He shows him in Athens, you know, the area Areopagus, this uh, intellectual place. And he gives a speech where he says, I see you're a religious people, but I'm here to announce that the gods don't dwell in temples made by human hands. But... God is not far from any one of you. That was his message. How do they know? Because God sent Paul to go and announce an invitation to them. So Paul goes and and he tries to say, the thing you're looking for is now coming near you. Will you see it? Will you participate? Will you turn? And so so the Christian community is meant to grow together for our own encouragement, our own personal growth. Um, But the church is meant to continue to grow on the earth so that we would have a contrary way of life and a contrary message. Once you had no hope and you were without God in the world, now there is a community that has hope and is with God in the world. And so we want to go into all of the world so that people who don't have hope have somebody nearby who will invite them to come. We want church buildings all over the place so that anyone who says I think I need to see if there is a God, they have a place to go. Um, And so uh, there's a a guy named Chris Wright. And uh, yeah, here it is. Uh, He has a book where he argues that the the whole purpose of the church or, or the whole purpose of God is missional, God going out to reclaim and to restore and to renew. And he says this, he says, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church, the church was made for mission, for God's mission. The God who goes into the hostel in order to bring peace, the God who goes and invites his enemies to change and to be reconciled is now present in his people who are then to go out and announce peace and good news and an invitation. And I was, as I was thinking of this, I was thinking of, of how we do hospitality, and sort of the most complicated and expensive form of hospitality is the fancy party, so it could be the wedding or the um, you know the sweet sixteen or the, the the nonprofit benefit or whatever kind of event that you go to where, where normally, how do we get food? Well, you go and you work and uh, you buy things and then you cook I have a very urban answer to things there 's been no killing of animals involved in my recounting of the story, but that's how we normally get food. Um, but, but a host who wants to serve you, who wants to invite you, who wants you to come and eat. Um, you know, a very complicated event, a lot of people, a lot of food, uh, food for hours. One of the goals is to make sure that the food is, is are, are serving you, are, are inviting you in and showing that we have a desire to show hospitality to you uh, is often expressed in our desire to bring the food near to you. So you could go to the cocktail reception where there's a bar, there's a table with some items, but there's also the servers who wanna make sure that, that any, any two or three minutes, somebody is asking you if you want something to eat or somebody's asking you if you want something to drink. That's not normal, but that's lavish, that's elaborate. And, and the picture is that God has invited all people to come. But the nature of God is God then draws near. And, and the church is meant to, in some way, be like that place where we say, here's where we meet on Sunday. The door is open. Are you seeking God? Do you want hope? Come. You can come. Here's a Bible study in your neighborhood. And here's some event, a concert that's going on. And we have these places that you can go if you're looking for hope, if you're looking for the life of God. But we're told to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, to be servants of God. And so we gather, we worship, we seek to be strengthened in the spirit, and then we're sent out so that we are near to people in our city. So if one of them thinks, I need hope, where do I go? Uh, You might be close enough to invite them uh, to come and to learn about the grace that God extends to them. And it's that picture of a growing community that when the spirit is at work, God joins us together and sends us into the world to start to bring all things in line with God and his grace, to not work out of our hostility, but to work out of our love, to not treat people in a dehumanizing way, but to build others up. And so the presence of God in the life of the church is meant to be for our benefit, but God has not taken us out of the world because he wants the church to go everywhere into the world to announce good news, the possibility of hope. And so that is part of our calling. Let's do that and do it together because that's how we grow. Let me pray. Our Father, um, where we are weak and immature, where uh, our minds are thinking according to the old ways, where your spirit is being squandered in us, we pray you'd forgive us. We pray for a strengthening, we pray for an outpouring, we pray for a renewal, we we pray that your life would bring us alive so that we would have the strength to, to come together, to love one another, to share in our lives, to bear witness to your grace, to be a community that depends on you. Lord, we pray it because we need it. We're lonely, we're fearful, we're wounded, we're isolated, we have troubles. We need that support so we pray that we would receive it. But Lord, may there be enough grace that when we go from this place, something of what you're doing in our lives would be for the good of our neighbors. And so, Lord, we pray that we would remain together, anchored in Christ at Cornerstone, and that we would be a community uh, whose worship extends so that your glory covers the earth, even as the water has covered the seas. Strengthen your church throughout the world so that we would be one in Christ and that we would um, be hospitable in how we welcome all people. We pray in his name. Amen.